Uh, well, good morning. Good to see you guys. In case you weren't here last week, the sermon uh, focused on Revelation chapter 12. In Revelation 12, John sees all of human history as a conflict between the dragon, which we saw was identified as Satan, and the woman um, who are the people of God. So this morning, Revelation 13, we see Satan. Um, in some way, um, he's embodied as these two beasts who um, conquer the world and persecute God's people. And so this morning, we're only looking at the first 10 verses of chapter 13. Uh, Dustin will be wrapping up um, chapter 13 next week um, as he has been studying and researching to where we, he, from my understanding, is going to give us a complete, exact um, understanding of the mark of the beast. So you don't want to miss next week. Revelation 13, 1 through 10, it shows us how Satan deceives and how he responds to those who are not persuaded by this deception. So now let's read this section together. I'm actually going to start at the end of chapter 12, just so we can have some context as we read about uh, the first beast this morning. So back in chapter 12, verse 17 says this, Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and to hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its head. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound. But its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast? And who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation, and all who dwell on earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with a sword, with the sword must he be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Let's pray together. Uh, Lord, the, um, the words before us uh, this morning are, are heavy. Um, it sounds horrific for us who um, want to praise your name and not praise the name of this beast. So Lord, I pray that anyone here has an ear that they would hear from you this morning. Lord, help us to stand fast in the midst of suffering and trials. Lord, may we endure to the very end. 
And we look forward to that day when we're with you and all this pain and suffering comes to an end. And we're glorified in our heavenly bodies. Lord, all this trouble, all this physical pain will be just a spot in history, just a speck in eternity's time. So Lord, help us to not put too much weight here on this place that we're just passing through. May we focus on our eternity with you in heaven. We pray all this in Christ's name. So as we walk through this passage together, it's really important that we keep in mind that John is writing this passage during the late first century. We began back in chapter one where this book was written. If you remember, it was, it was directed, written to the seven churches in Asia. We talked about how those were actual, you know, real churches in Asia Minor, but how the number seven also meant complete or full so that these letters were also, this letter was actually written for us as well. But if you're living during John's time, there's a really good chance, you know, you're sitting there reading this in first century, um, there's a really good chance you would have interpreted this passage differently than how many interpret it today. John and his contemporaries lived under Roman rule. Many of you over the last, I don't know, several months, I feel like Dustin's really just been after me the last month to watch Chosen, okay? How many of you have watched Chosen? Probably because Dustin's been texting you. Um, I finally gave in. I started watching it. Wow, it's amazing. It's really, really good. Um, and what you'll notice in, this, in The Chosen is how well I think they, they portray the Jews do not like the Romans. How Rome has just you know, persecuted them and um, oppressed them. And so, you know, John was a Jew. Um, and... and Reading, you know, as his contemporaries are reading this letter, um, Jews despised Rome. At that time, Nero, um, the emperor, was a wicked, wicked man. He brought horrific persecution among the early church. Um, it has been recorded that Nero would tie Christians to a pole, set them on fire to illuminate his garden at night. And if that wasn't sick enough, Nero even killed his own mother. Um, these were just some of the reasons why he was referred to as a beast. It's recorded in 68 AD, Nero committed suicide, but not everyone believed that he actually went through with it. Legends sprang up that Nero had actually fled, fled to Parthia, and that he led the Parthian troops against Rome to reclaim uh, his lost power. The legends were so plausible that at least three imposters appeared claiming to be Nero and trying to take power. So this is all relevant to us as we think through Revelation 13. Chapter 13, as we just read, contains a beast who seemed to have died, but returned to life and to rule the whole known world. Nero was also worshipped as a living God. He was a deity. In chapter 13, we see this beast receiving worship. Chapter 13 actually contains two beasts. Both beasts are demonic parodies of God. In fact, if you include the dragon along with these two beasts, they have been known as the unholy trinity. The dragon, who we know as Satan, attempts to rule and reign like the father. 
The first beast attempts his own death and resurrection story, which likens him to Christ. The second beast, which we will see next week, points worship back to the first beast, which is similar to the role of the Holy Spirit pointing us to worship Christ. The Antichrist, which is what some people have called the first beast, this is because of how he mimics the Christ's death and resurrection and how he receives worship, but notice that nowhere in this chapter the name Antichrist appears. In fact, interestingly enough, the only place in the New Testament where the word Antichrist actually appears is in same guy who's writing this is John's epistles, but not anywhere in Revelation. Nowhere in Revelation is the beast ever called the Antichrist. And if you were to go back to John's letters, so those, you know, those ep- epistles, um, First and Second John, if you were to go back to those and just look for the word Antichrist, this is what you will find John refers to Antichrist. I don't have this up here. So anyone who denies... That Jesus is the Christ. First John 2.22. John would say that's an antichrist. Anyone who denies the Father and the Son. Anyone or every spirit that does not confess Jesus. First John 4.3. And then those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Second John chapter. Or second uh, John um, um, chapter 1 verse 7. So this is this. This picture of these antichrists. Um, Historically, even if you think of like pre-reformers, John Wycliffe, who lived during the late 14th century, believed the papacy as an institution, as an office, rather than any one particular pope, was the antichrist. In fact, almost all the Protestant reformers, um, including Martin Luther, Luther, even um, most of the Puritans, identified the antichrist with the Roman Catholic Church, um, more specifically the office of, this, of the papacy, you know, the, the popes. I'm guessing our next-door neighbors, Lady Fatima, do not appreciate this view very much. Uh, here's um, how one author interprets the beast of Revelation 13, because there's some that still, that, you know, that don't look at it as being Rome. Some don't look at it as being the Roman Catholic Church or throughout history. Some look at this as being like, Uh, an individual at the end of times. And this is how one author writes. He says, somewhere at this very moment on planet Earth, the Antichrist is almost certainly alive, biding his time, awaiting his cue. Already a mature man, he's probably active in politics, perhaps even admired world leader whose name is almost daily on everyone's lips. So there's a whole gamut of who is this Antichrist? What is the Antichrist? Um, I do not think it is wise to see the beast as merely an individual living at the end of human history. And as we walk through this passage, hopefully that will make sense. Rather, I think it makes far more sense that the beast here describes some government, political, economic system through whom Satan works. Um, of course, the system would also include the, the head of that government, some individual, but the beast as a whole will most likely represent a nation. Um, last week, we saw in chapter 12 that Satan has been defeated, but he can still oppress the saints. And so that's what we see here, this culmination, this oppression, this war that's happening among Christians, 
We primarily see um, the way in which he exerts his influence and wages war against the people of God is through the activities and oppression of these two beasts. So Satan uses these two beasts to oppress the people of God. This war from chapter 12, where the dragon is said to wage with the church, is actually carried out by his servants here in chapter 13. So for John, there's a really good chance that the beast would at least represent Rome. But throughout other centuries, the beast would have probably been other means by which Satan used to persecute the church, which is what the reformers thought. So let's walk through this passage verse by verse, and let's see who or what this first beast represents. Verse 1, And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns, and blasphemous names on its head. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard, its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed. And the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. So the dragon, who was identified last week as Satan in chapter 12, he was described to have seven heads, ten horns, and on his head heads seven diadems. Here in 13.1, the beast who rises from the sea to do the dragon's work also has seven heads and ten horns, but he now has ten diadems or crowns rather than seven. Notice the beast receives its power and his throne and great authority from where? From, from the dragon. The dragon is giving his power over to this first beast. So just as the Father, and I want you to see this unholy trinity kind of play out. Just as the Father has been giving authority to others, here we see the dragon imitating the Father by giving authority to this first beast. The crowns or diadems point to the beast's false claim of sovereignty, of royalty, and authority posing as the one true king. I mean, this is hideous. You can even argue that the beast here is the exact image of the invisible dragon so also a play with the father and the son as the dragon is posing as the sovereign father the beast is posing as the reigning christ the way the beast is described there's no way again if if, if i say this every week to understand revelation you have to understand the old testament and there's no way someone who has an understanding some background of the old testament could not read Revelation 13, and not go back to Daniel chapter 7. Um, one author states this. In Daniel 7, we read about four beasts who rise up out of the sea, which in Scripture is often symbolic of evil, chaos, and anti-kingdom powers with whom Yahweh must contend. We should also note that the image of an evil sea monster always symbolizes kingdoms that oppose and oppress Israel. It may be that John's reference to the sea is synonymous with the abyss, the source or abode of those demonic powers that are opposed to God. So even um, Jews believe like the Sea of Galilee that it could be haunted. Um, So any dark body of water they thought could be evil. And so here's this, this creature coming out of this evil place. 
And you notice that in Daniel 7, that prophecy about these four kingdoms represented four, um, or these four beasts prophesied about these four kingdoms. And so that's why I, I think this beast, since it likens so much to Daniel 7, this is probably talking about a kingdom, not just an individual. What this author is attempting to communicate is that um, where those four beasts of Daniel 7 represented four historical successive world empires, his point is the beast of Revelation 13 is John's creative conglomeration of them all. So you take the evil of those four different kingdoms that Daniel was prophesizing about, you take all those together, and this is what you're going to see, this horrific evil kingdom. All the evil characteristics of those four kingdoms are now embodied in this one sea beast who becomes Satan's main agent in persecuting the people of God. But we see here in verse 4 that not everyone will view the beast as being evil and doing the work of Satan. Look at verse 4. And they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast and they worshiped the beast, saying, who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in earth, or dwell in heaven. So in verse 4, they worshiped the dragon, the they, or those who dwell on the earth, not only did they worship the dragon, but they also worship this beast. Notice that the dragon, he's sharing his glory with the beast, much like the father desires man to worship Jesus. Those on earth were saying, who is like the beast? Who can fight against it? This is a direct comparison back um, to how the heavens worshiped and praised the true king back in chapter 5. When the mighty angel asked, who is worthy to open up the scroll? You remember John began to weep, but then he was commanded to weep no more because Jesus was worthy. Now in chapter 13, we see those on the earth who are deceived are making much of, this, of the uniqueness and, and the greatness of this beast. Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? I mean, they're in awe. Well, let me tell you about the one who not only can fight against it, but has and stands victoriously. King Jesus has defeated the enemy. But the evil one keeps holding on to hope. In verse 5, the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. The haughty and blasphemous words that the beast is allowed by God to utter are probably ver uh, verbal claims of his deity. He's, he's saying that he's God. And then notice how even here, God's sovereignty over the beast, it was given the ability to blaspheme and was allowed to exercise his authority. What this means is that the beast's time of authority has already been determined. And it isn't determined by the beast. God has allotted to this beast 
a certain short period of time. That's all he has. 42 months. And he uses it to blaspheme and to persecute the church. The beast will have authority for 42 months. We've seen this measurement before. Um, 42 months, it's the same as three and a half years, 1,260 days. A time, times, and a half a time from last week. All of those represent this 42-month, three-and-a-half-year period. Some believe the 42 months could be the second half of Daniel's 70th week. Others think this 42, um, 42 months has covered from the resurrection of Christ till now. And then there's still others that believe this is some future literal 42 months, that there's going to be this three-and-a-half-year reign in Intense persecution. Regardless of your view, the beast's attack against the people of God, it began verbally. So you a lot of verbal, you know, this is what we're going to say about you. But then in verse 7, the attack becomes physical. Look down at verse 7. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all who dwell on earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of, the, of life of the Lamb who was slain. Stealing God's worship was not sufficient for this unholy trinity as long as the people of God were there to object and, and, and speak out against what was going on. So the beast begins to make war um, on the saints and to conquer them. You know, they didn't want to hear any objection. They wanted complete loyalty and worship. And so as long as Christians were there standing up against them, that was not good. So let's get rid of the Christians. But the end of verse 7 is why many people feel this has not happened yet. Uh, there's not one government who is making war on the saints and conquering those of every tribe and people and language and nation. You know what I mean? There's not just one, one government. And so this is why the futurists, and the futurist means um, those who look to the future as being this 42 literal months. Um, maybe you're more familiar with like the word dis dispensational. That would be a, f a futurist way of thinking about Revelation. The futurists would say Rome could not be the Antichrist. And that's a really good point. And this is why the futurists is listening for plans of a one world order. This is why things like NATO make the futurists really nervous. Or a one world currency. Anything that would give you know, this a, a unity among the nations, among the world, that would alert, alarm a futurist. But if the beast is a manifestation of Satan, and Satan has been given authority from God, then it, it would be possible for Satan to influence many different nations all at the same time, and all at the same time under his one rule command. So it would be true that the persecution our northern neighbors in Canada that they're facing, which they're facing persecution, they're, there's pastors being arrested now in Canada, they're facing a different earthly government than our brothers and sisters facing persecution in the Middle East, but both persecutions could be from the dragon. The dragon could be influencing both 
both nations. And then notice how the beast is not even in control of his very own war. Look back at verse 7. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. Notice, it was allowed to make war. And authority was given it. God is ultimately the one who is allowing the saints to be conquered. That may seem like a strange, like, seem like a strange statement. That may bother some of you that God would allow us to suffer. But Christ has warned the church that we will suffer for his name. So God is not breaking any promise to us by not removing pain from our lives. I think verse 8 gives us tremendous insight to why he allows Christians to go through horrific suffering. Look at verse 8. And all who dwell on earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. All of those who dwell on earth will worship it. This is how Revelation makes a distinction between the Christian from the non-Christian. The non-Christian has made its earth its home, so he dwells here, whereas the Christian identifies heaven as home. So those who call earth home, they're worshiping the beast. Those who don't worship the beast have their gaze fixed to the heavens, worship the true king, and will face intense persecution because of that worship. The second half of verse 8 is why these suffering Christians can keep praising God while potentially, potentially facing death. And all who dwell on the earth will worship it, everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. We see here a book, a book called the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. According to this verse, if your name is written in this book, then you will not worship the beast. But if your name is not in this book, then you will worship the beast. Satan is called the deceiver. He has deceived the world to trust him, to worship him. But those whose names who are written in the book of life will not be led astray. They will not be deceived. They will remain faithful. Jesus speaks of this deception in Mark's gospel. So Jesus was preparing um, his disciples for this day. Um, the chosen hasn't gotten this far uh, in this. Um, um, but thankfully, the word of God has already covered it all. So let's go to it instead of some show. And so Mark chapter 13, let's start in verse 19. Mark 13, 19 says this. For in those days, so Jesus is preparing them for these final days. For the, in those days, there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. For the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. 
For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. So here in Mark 13, Jesus warns about false Christs, about false prophets who do signs and wonders that are so compelling that they would lead astray, if possible, the elect. If it were possible for the elect to be led astray, these signs and wonders would be convincing enough to do it. But it isn't possible for the elect to be led astray because God wrote their names in the Lamb's book of life before the foundation of the world. This is what's called the doctrine of election. The doctrine of election is so comforting to the Christian. The doctrine of election says that God has chosen you before the foundation of the world to belong to him. I want you to think about this for a moment. How many, so think of a timeline, okay? Let's say we're here on the timeline. Christ died on the cross, let's say, and rose from the dead here. Let's say the beginning of the world was here, okay? So what this says is somewhere before the foundation of the world, your name was written in this Lamb's Book of Life. How many dumb things did you do before the foundation of the world? None, right? God chose you even when he knew all the dumb things that you were going to do in your life. That is incredible news for all of us. This means that you can never use the excuse that you've been too bad for God to choose you. Because he chose you before you ever were formed. Before you ever did any of those things, he already had your name written down. On the flip side, you know, we're here, Christ's death, resurrection's here, foundation of the world is here. How many good things did you do for the Lord before the foundation of the world? Not a single thing. Zero, zilch, nada. This shows you that the Lord did not choose you because of how helpful you were for his kingdom. He didn't choose you because you were so special, you know, to, to this day and age that we just needed you. Like, man, so glad he added you. No, he chose you because he was kind, gracious, loving, merciful upon you. Some of you, I think these are good places where your brain might be going right now. You may be wondering, how does one get their name written in the book of life? Well, the answer is God places it there. That's how it's written. So then how, if God writes it there, and this is written before the foundation of the world, how do you know if your name is written in the book? Because it seems like your eternal destination is based on whether your name is written in this book or not. So this is super important for us. Knowing if your name is in this book is paramount for us. Well, here's how I believe you can know. Here's some questions to ask yourself. Do you desire God? Have you confessed your sin? Do you hate your sin and your disobedience? 
These are all markers of those who have been chosen or elected. The people of God love the things of God. So that's how you know. That's how I know that the Lord has saved me. Because the things I used to love to do before Christ, now I hate those things. The things that I would, you know, would have never said I would love to do, now, now I love. And so the Lord has changed me. I, I hate my sin, and there's plenty of it. Um, and, I, and, I, and I hate it. Um, if you're not sure whether or not you have been chosen, think about the fact that God loved you by sending Jesus to die to pay the penalty for your sin. Trust in him. Trust in Jesus. Repent of your sin right now. You can ignore the rest of everything I'm saying. If you're caught up right now, just repent of your sin. Repent. Confess your sin to God. Recognize that the reason Jesus died was to atone for your sin. And then flee from your sin. Place all your hope in Christ. These are the things that those whose names are written in the book of life believe and live out. So what is John's encouragement to us who all live in this foreign land that we call earth? Let's keep reading verse 9. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. And these were the, this is the same phrase that John used back with most of the churches. Those seven churches, he would say, if anyone has an ear, let him hear. So he, he repeats this again. If anyone is, taken, is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword must he be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Verses 9 and 10 show us the troubling fact so that we can prepare ourselves to what we may have to face one day. I don't think any of you is going to leave this morning thinking, man, that passage this morning was so encouraging. I don't think that's the point of this passage. I think the point of this passage is to show us what could be coming, what has been coming, um, and that we need to be ready and that the Lord is protecting you, spiritually speaking. The logic of verses 9 and 10 is that there's no avoiding what God has predestined to happen to you. If God has predestined you to be taken captive so that you will have the opportunity to show that God means more to you than freedom, then you'll be taken captive. If God is predestined for you to be slain with the sword so that you will have the opportunity to show that God means more to you than life and life itself, then you will be slain by the sword. This is why we need to live on mission always. Uh, sometimes I, when, I, when I worked with BCM and worked with campus ministry, I, I saw this way more often when students would want to go on the mission field. And then they would tell their parents. You know, sometimes their parents would call me. And I'm thinking, oh, wow, how exciting. They're calling me to, about their son or daughter going around the world to, to be obedient to God's command of the Great Commission. But they would call me and say, hey, I heard about my, my son or daughter, and I was just wondering if you could talk, talk them out of it, that they shouldn't go. It's really dangerous. Like, you, you've called the wrong person. I, it's probably my fault because of something I've said, uh, and so I, I, and I would just try to tell them, like, 
the God who's in control here in Huntington, West Virginia, is the same God that's in control in the Middle East or any other Eritrea. You know, um, and Alex said it so much better. Alex, you, where is Alex? Oh, she's with the kids. I've been calling it Eritrea. It's probably like our version of uh, when we get mad when people say, um, uh, yeah, Appalachia. Like, but God is sovereign over all of us, over everything. So when, like, I think of Andrew and Emily, and Emily, your mom hasn't called me yet, but, because she knows, like, God is in control. In, in Poland, watching over you there, and this sweet little baby, just as he is here in Huntington. That's the God we serve. So that's, this passage is encouraging. It just has a different angle for us. So this is why God calls us here at the end of this section, a call for the endurance and the faith of the saints. You may endure some horrific things, but God is he's not blind to it. He sees it. Let me close this morning as I tie verses 9 and 10 back to Jesus speaking. Now, this time it's in Matthew's gospel of this same account. Matthew chapter 10. Again, this is, this is Jesus speaking. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Now, how comforting does that sound? You moms and dads in the rooms, I, you know, we just celebrated Xavier's 14th birthday, and Olivia made a post on Facebook of his baby picture, and it, now, and it was just, just like the other day, we were taking him to BCM at University of Charleston, and some of the students comment, like, that's 14 years ago. Wow, that's crazy. As you parents think about your little children growing up, and you're leading them to follow and trust in Jesus, is this the Jesus you want them to follow? That Jesus is sending out your little baby boy and girl out as sheep, sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. And you will be dragged before the governors and the kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death. Father is child. Children will rise against their parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. This sounds a lot like Revelation 13. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly, I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house of Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those, who, uh, those of his household? So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light. 
and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore. You are more value than, than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my father who is in heaven. God is calling us to a life of suffering. We at least need to be ready to face suffering. And there's no need for us to be afraid of any suffering that comes our way. Jesus says, fear not. I mean, think about it. What can man actually do to you? Maybe make fun of you as you share the gospel at work? Maybe you lose your job. Maybe you're fined for holding firm to your Christian convictions. Maybe you're in prison. For your faith. Or maybe your body will actually be, be killed. I truly believe there's coming a day where I will be fined and possibly imprisoned for hate speech. I think it's coming. Um, but through it all, Jesus is with you. That's Revelation 13. That you stand firm, do not lose heart as you go out this week. To your mission field. Do not lose heart. This is not your home. And the world can do nothing to you that God does not first give it permission to do. And the world cannot take anything from you that God can't just give right back to you. The world is his. We are in his hands and he's holding us. That's encouraging news for us. That he's not going to lose any one of his sheep. He knows you by name. And you belong to him. As the band comes back up, let's, let's pray together. Oh, Father, we come to you knowing you are the good shepherd. That you know our names. And Lord, we're just overwhelmed that you would put our name in your book. We know it's not because of how good we've lived, because of how our parents believed, it's because you have been so gracious and kind and merciful. If it was by merit, there would be no name in that book other than Christ. We've all fallen short, but you have been so merciful to us. to save, to choose some. And so, Lord, as we leave this place today, may we continue to call others to trust in you. There are many around us whose name has been written, and they have no idea their name has been written. So we need to invite them to, to trust in you. So as we do that, we're going to face persecution, we're going to face suffering, but, Lord, may we stand firm knowing that through that suffering and persecution, you're going to continue to, to grow your church. So, Lord, give us, give us the faith to trust you. 
Help us to lean on you and not on our own understanding. And I pray all this in Christ's name.